finishing up this series on Proverbs. It's been words to the wise and following around specific words through it, but I wanted to end it the whole time. My favorite passage of Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5 to, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or make your path straight, depending on how you have it. Uh, and the thing is, is, is as I say that, I, 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 a part of me cringes a little bit because I'm not a follow-your-heart kind of guy. I think follow-your-heart is one of the worst pieces of advice you ever get uh, because, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's King James' version of that. And, and uh, I like that. I like, I like Romans 12, 2, where it says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may confirm what is the good and the perfect and acceptable will of God. I think I got that right. Uh, and, and he says, says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and I'm one of those people who stands back and says, Make sure your mind guides your heart. Put your mind in charge. Don't let your heart run away with you. And then we come to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not on your own understanding, but, or trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I'm going, wait a minute, God. <laughs> so I'm only going to believe the verses that I like and throw the others. No, uh, I, 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 I think there is not really a contradiction between these two. It sounds like these two teachings are doing this head-on collision kind of thing. But you need to understand, the heart is known as the center of emotions. That's the heart you don't trust. But the heart is also the center of your will and the center of your being. And that's the heart we are to lean on. Uh, it is the center of your faith. Our brains should rule our emotions, but our faith should rule our brains. And the heart is the center of faith. Sometimes God would have us do things that we can't quite wrap our minds around. And anyone who's been a Christian for any time should have encountered... By the way, this is, this is, in many ways, this is one of the simplest messages you'll ever hear me preach. There, there's nothing complicated about this, but it's not easy. Because <laughs> the simple things are profound and they're hard. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Sometimes there are things we can't wrap our minds around, uh, but they're still the right thing to do. Uh, today we're going to look at some biblical examples of people trusting God with all their heart. Then we're going to go from the Bible to real life. And I've got three different examples. I'm not going to solve the problems. I'm just going to show how it is a dilemma between the mind and faith. And then we're going to see what this making your paths straight thing is all about. So heroes of faith, right? It's easy to go to, to look at heroes of, heroes of faith. We'll take a couple of peeks into uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is, we call it the Heroes of Faith Hall of Fame or the Heroes of Faith chapter or whatever you want to call it. It just gives a listing of different faithful people and sometimes talks about what they've done. And, and if you look at the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the very first one we find is Abel. And you go, but Abel didn't actually do anything. He just got killed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what he did, we don't know what he did besides being on the receiving end of Cain's anger. But he is listed first in the Heroes of Faith, Hebrews list of faithful examples. We could go to Noah. Noah's a really good example. You think about it. We talked about Noah in Sunday school this morning, and he's told to build a boat for something that's never happened before. It's, it's never happened before, but he's got to build a boat to be ready for it. And it's like, wow, how do you do that? But, but I'm going to skip both those two and go to Abraham because Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac is maybe one of the best examples we find, maybe the best example we find in Scripture uh, about what's going on, right? So uh, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, uh, you can follow along there. And, and we have the story of Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac. And let me read for you verses 20, chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses. I mean, not in Genesis. I'm in Leviticus. <laughs> doesn't read the same. I don't know why not. Uh, you know, I found that with age, I'm not getting more intelligent. <laughs> Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 10. Then the Lord took... That's 21. Third time's the charm. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Abraham, so Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he split wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out with his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And that's where I'm going to stop because I'm not talking about what God did. I'm talking about what Abraham did, right? Uh, now, we have to recognize something. I'm going to, I'm going to we, hang on to that passage. I'm going to stick a pin in there so I don't lose my spot and flip back a few chapters to chapter 12, verse 1. Because this is the same son, right? In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God told Abram at this time, Abram, not Abraham. And now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. He says, I will make you into a great nation. Now that was at the beginning of Abraham's, or Abram's ministry here. He's only 75 there. He's 99 when Isaac is born. And we don't know how old Isaac is, but he's, well, Abram's over 100 years old now when, when, when he's sacrificing Isaac. Uh, we, we've had many years go by since that promise. And this is his only son, because God, he has uh, Ishmael, but God's not accepting Ishmael. He says he's not the one. This is after this promise. Chapter 15, verses 2 through 5. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram also said, since you have given me no son who has been born into my house, uh, uh, there, one who is, has been born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And, and he made him this promise. One who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. You are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So God said, You're going to have these descendants as much as the stars of the sky if you could count them. And Abram at this point still doesn't have a son. And this is the son that the promise was made about that he's going up to sacrifice. You can see how this would be hard to wrap your mind around. This is after what we read about in 22. is after chapter 17, verses 15 through 22. Then God said to Abram, Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, you shall, not call her, you shall not call her by the name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a, man, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? 
Uh, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, give birth to a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, which means laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Ishmael I have heard about, and he goes on and talks about Ishmael and so on. But, but this, is this, this is after that. After that, God tells Abram, and, and I, he, so he has Ishmael. God's already said, no, Ishmael's not the one. It's Isaac. Ishmael is the son Abram had by a concubine, by, by Sarah's, Sarah's maid. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not, what I, what I'm, that's not me fulfilling my promise. That's you cheating, <laughs> trying to get around it. He says, I, I'm fulfilling my promise the way it is. And he, he gives him this one son. He's 100 years old. He has his firstborn child. And he has that one son. And now, how old is the son? I don't know. He's old enough to carry the wood up the mountain. He doesn't know he's carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. But he's old enough to carry it up there. I don't know how old he was. But he's strong enough. Right? He's, he's big enough to do this. And, and, and he's still the only son. There's been no more. And God tells him to sacrifice him. And Abram does that. Now, how can you do that? How can you wrap your head around that? God, you said, you said, this is the one you're going to multiply. You said, you're going to make me the father of many nations. You said, you said, this is the one. And, and, and so how does Abram wrap his mind around that? And of course, we get to cheat because we know the story. You go, ha, 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 God's going to provide. Abram didn't know that up to the point where I stopped reading. Or Abraham. He didn't know that. So let's, let's skip it back to Hebrews 11 because it actually gives us the answer. And it's amazing what Abraham thought. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tempted, offered up Isaac, and the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son. It was he through whom it was said, through Isaac your descendants shall be made, named. Right? He's saying the same Isaac that God said your descendants are going to be through him. That's the one God told him to kill. And so Abram's got this, this mental dilemma. How can I kill him if he's the one that's going to, going to, to be the source of blessing in all my descendants and all these things? How can God have me kill him if that's going to be done? But God tells me to do it. How can I do this? And Abraham, what does it say there? He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he had also received him back by, as a type. So Abraham did not know God was going to prevent him from killing Isaac. He believed he was going to kill Isaac, but that God would not be stopped in his promise. Abraham was not pretending he was ready to kill Isaac. He was actually ready to kill Isaac because he believed God, because he said God has to keep his promise. God made a promise. God has to keep his promise. So I will do what God asked me to do. You can't wrap your mind around that. He did it by faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Of course, we know that God stopped him from doing it. But Abraham, now, now when we say that, we know, for instance, we can go back and we can look. There were, there's uh, one of my favorite stories of somebody coming back from the dead. It was Elisha's, Elisha's grave. You know, where, where they were coming to bury a guy and they saw some raiders coming, so they threw their dead guy and onto Elisha's tomb and the guy came to life. <laughs> I like to tell it that, that uh, you know, they see the guys running, they go, ah! So they throw the body down. The guy, the guy wakes up and he looks and he sees the raiders coming and he goes, ah! And the raiders see him and they go, ah! <laughs> 
because everybody's scared. Then we, we, we read stories of people being raised from the dead in the Bible. Both Elijah and Elisha raised a young boy from the dead. Jesus brought back Lazarus. He brought back the widow's son. He brought back the daughter of Jairus. Peter brought back uh, Dorcas, right? We read these stories. We're familiar with them, but not one of those stories was around when this happened. Abraham had no story to look at. He had no precedent to say, here's why I believe God will do this. But he believed God would do this because he said, God must keep his promise. And so he leaned not on his own understanding, trusted God with all his heart. So let's go to some others. And my next favorite, I, mean, I love the book of Daniel. The, the book of Daniel, the first six chapters are, are the kids' stories. And by the way, that's all we're going today. <laughs> the next six chapters are deep and complicated prophecy. Uh, and, and, and the, but the kids' chapters are, are fun. And, and, and in chapter 1, we have them not eating the king's food. So if you turn with me to the book of Daniel. I could give you a page number, but my page numbers are based on the size of my giant print font. <laughs> Probably have more pages in my Bible than you have in yours. Uh, chapter 1 of Daniel. Daniel and his friends have been taken captive to Babylon. They've been taken captive along with a whole lot of other young men, right? The best, they're all of the royal lineage. They are the best, the noblest, the brightest, the healthiest, the most impressive. Uh, they are the, the, the elite creme de la creme of, of the, the young men of, of Jerusalem. And they have been brought to Babylon. And one of the things the king says, because he's going to have them trained in the Babylonian ways, is give them food from my table. And Daniel looks at that and says, this is, this is not kosher. He says, we can't eat that. The king, starting at verse 5, chapter 1, the king allotted for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commanders of the officials assigned them the names to Daniel, and he assigned the name Belshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God had granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has allotted your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison with the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the command overseer who, to whom the commander had appointed of the officials over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please put your servant to the test for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence and the appearance of the youth uh, who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So they ask permission to not eat the good food. Now, does anybody here ever had, has anybody here ever been to a health class? Uh, now, there is such a thing as vegetarians and vegans, Okay. I still find that hard to believe, too. But, but I, I acknowledge that it's true. <laughs> and, and they don't eat meat. And they work really hard to supplement their diet so they can stay healthy. Because a, a diet of vegetables and water does not beef you up. It trims you down, which, by the way, some of us could benefit from. <laughs> but, but it doesn't beef you up. And we know that. That's obvious. We learned that when we were little. We understand that. It makes sense. We want to lose weight, we eat salad. We, we want to beef up, we eat beef. <laughs> There's a reason we use that, because it's, it's got all the 
proteins and everything that, that beefs us up and makes us strong and healthy and grow tall and large and strong, all those things. And, and they're do, what they're doing is exactly, completely contrary to reason. But Daniel says this is, this is, this, it's not just that they have to be vegetarian, but there's no meat there that he can eat that has not been sacrificed to idols. There is no meat there that he can eat that is going to fit within the guidelines. And, and here's the thing is, is all the other young Jewish men are eating that food, and they're happy, right? So, so imagine you'd been raised Jewish, and someone told you, you don't have to follow those rules anymore, and you discover bacon. Are you happy? <laughs> right? He said, yes, I am happy. Right? Bacon makes you happy. Uh, if it doesn't, I don't know, you're the, there's always an exception that proves the rule, I guess. Uh, bacon, yeah, that's, that's these guys. They're eating all this food, and they like it, and they're looking good. They're beefing up. They're gaining weight, and Daniel and his friends are starting to eat these vegetables. The King James, anybody remember the King James word? For, instead of vegetables, it says pulp. Pulp. Oh, I, I'd rather it said gruel. You know, it's just like pulp. I don't know what that means. It sounds like mashed mixed veggies. It just, yeah, it's, it's not a happy picture. Daniel and his friends were among some people who looked like a defeated people. They were amongst a people who looked like their God had been defeated, but they said, doesn't matter. We will not dishonor our God. We will not do what they want us to do. And it certainly looks, reason tells you they would fail the king's test. But when it finished, they were observably healthier. Verse 15, chapter 1. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And and, and, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. How could they be fatter? Because God was taking care. It's it's miraculous. Accept that as miraculous. Don't don't start coming up with ways that that is nutritiously better. Because I'm going to say, I don't care about all your degrees in health. I know the difference between eating veggies and meat, (laughs) right? Uh, and, And what makes the difference. Then, of course, there's, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, the fiery furnace, right? Everybody's supposed to bow down when the king's orchestra plays and, and bow down and worship the statue he made, this giant totem pole of a statue. People think, it's a, think it might be a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but the thing's 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. That makes it a pole. It makes it like your leg, not like your torso. Uh, it, it's, uh, we're not like that. We're like a three-to-one ratio. That's a ten-to-one ratio. It's tall and skinny, but they're supposed to bow down to it. It's a huge, impressive thing, and, and they're supposed to bow down to it and worship it, and, and uh, they're told they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. The king gets really ticked because he likes these guys. He gives them a second chance, and they say, we don't care. I mean, that's, that's almost literally what they say. Chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 23 Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar began speaking and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, he gives them a second chance. He likes these guys. He wants to spare their lives. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of musical instruments, to fall down and worship the statue that I made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can rescue you from my hands? Because reason obviously says you're toast at that point, right? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you, to give you concerning this matter. That's why I say it's almost literally, I don't care. We don't care. King, we don't care. Uh, do what you're going to do. Um, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to rescue us from the fire, furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. So he, he has the fire heated up hotter, throws them in, and they burn to death immediately. No, the guys who throw them in burn to death immediately. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are down there going, ooh, this is cool. Right? They're walking around, and there's a fourth man there who looks like the son of God or a son of the gods, depending on you know, what uh, you want to... It's basically, it's an angel. Might be Jesus. Might be an angel. I don't know. But, but they're, they're not alone in there because there's something more than what is humanly possible going on there. Reason says this is impossible. And by the way, they were not willing to deny what was reasonable to happen. They said, if we burn to death, so be it. We'll burn to death. But we're not going to deny our God. We're not going to worship your statue. And, and, and it's so, so bead that God delivered them and he spared their lives because he made their path straight. And then, of course, the best known story of all in the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Uh, Daniel, by this time, is an old man. He's been there for 70 years. Don't know for sure how old he is at this point, but he's been there for 70 years. And and there's nothing in the chapter, it's, it's all chapter 6, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. There's nothing in that chapter that says he expected to live. There's nothing in that chapter that says he thought he was going to be okay and the lions wouldn't eat him. Probably he thought he was going to his death, but he would not deny things. But you know what's really fascinating about this is that, that of the two, the king and Daniel, Daniel is the one who slept good. It doesn't actually say that, but I'll tell you what it does say. Chapter 6, verses... Um, I wrote down 16 to 8. <laughs> then the king gave his orders, and Daniel was brought in and thrown into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you continually serve, will himself rescue you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed regarding Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. The king did not sleep well. Then the king got up at dawn at the break of day and went in a hurry to the lion's den. And when he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with troubled voice. The king began speaking and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. God sent an angel, shut the lion's mouths. I'm fine. Mm. It's kind of comfortable. It's like having, a, you know, electric blankets weren't invented yet, but hot lion Lions were. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think Daniel slept well of the two. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But he trusted in God with all his heart and did not lean on his own understanding. Acknowledged him in all his ways, and God made his path straight. Let's go to the New Testament. This is, this is, this is a fun story from the book of Acts. It's the last one I'm going to do. Uh, uh, of the Bible before I start talking about our own lives. Acts chapter 5. The apostles are out preaching on the temple grounds at Solomon's Colonnade. The temple grounds are a big area. It's not just the temple. There's a whole lot of area around, surrounding the temple. And one of these areas is called Solomon's Colonnade. It was one of their favorite places. And the apostles are out there preaching on Solomon's Colonnade. This is, this is uh, not a whole lot of years maybe within a year since Christ rose again. 
and they're out there preaching, and they get arrested because the high priests don't like that. And so they arrest them and have them put in jail. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, they are released from jail. And the angel who releases, or, and they're given the message, uh, go back and do what you did. Let's start with chapter 5, verses 17 through the first part of verse 21. Acts 5. But the high priest stood up. Is that what I want? Yeah, but the high priest stood up along with his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and leading them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple area the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered the temple area about daybreak and began to teach. So in other words, they went back to where they were arrested and did what they were arrested for. <laughs> now, let's talk about lean not on your own understanding. <laughs> we have a story in the house. It's kind of fun. I'll embarrass Bethany. She's not here. She skipped out to go visit Josh, and I'll teach her a lesson. So <laughs> when she was a little girl, she did what a lot of small children do. She picked up something at a dollar store and did that. And Joan came, or coming home, Joan saw her with it. Where'd you get that? They went back to the dollar store. She took Bethany in, and Bethany had to admit what she had done and pay for it. And the lady forgave her and took the money. And, but Bethany, for, for, for the rest of her life, she still doesn't like to go into a dollar store. She, I don't think she has returned to that particular one. <laughs> she doesn't want to. It's, it's, like you, it's like, I'm not going back to that same place and doing that. I'm not going back there at all. I don't want to be seen there. I don't want to. You know, do you think the people that she went to still work there? <laughs> this was like 25 years ago. You know, it's, 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 it's not likely she could walk in there and just be fine, but her, you know, her sense of Guilt and shame, yeah, just, just uh, it's not, sometimes, you know, they, they went right back to the same place and did the same thing. Your reason tells you not to do that. Your reason tells you, no, I got arrested there. I don't like getting arrested. They put me in jail. I don't like being in jail. I mean, I'm, I'm taking that by inference. I've never been there. I mean, I've been in jail visiting. <laughs> it's not so bad. It's, it's not fun, but it's not so bad. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's like, I don't want to go back there. But the angel said, Go back there and do it again. So they went back there and did it again. They went back and did the exact same thing. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. They trusted God with all their heart, and they did not lean on their own understanding. This is, this is simple in the Bible, isn't it? Isn't it so simple and so great to hear these stories? Let's talk about some real-life situations. This is not fun. Okay, first of all, there's no exhaustive list. But God has a way of making us prove our faith. Each one of us. Think of any area of life. Because you can have struggles. Is it not true you can have struggles in pretty much every area of your life? Is there anything exempt from struggles? Uh, we can have struggles in all our life. And, and if it is important to you, it can be an area of struggle. Because there's conflicts between different things that are important. And what is important to us, there's that one most important thing that says, uh-uh, I am still most important. And it's hard. In our areas of struggle, there are the solutions our reason gives us and the solutions God word, God's word gives us, and often they are not the same solution. Often the solution our mind gives us is much more attractive to us than the one that, that God gives us. They, they, we, we can see how they work or at least how we hope they'll work. 
We can see the way it ought to unfold, the events. But when we just trust God, we can't see that. So let's name a few. Let's start with everybody's favorite, money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It doesn't say all evil, but all kinds of evil. There's almost nothing people have, no sin people haven't done for money. Uh, we sin to get more money, and then we sin by trusting money. And which one is worse? Uh, we all know you cannot trust both money and God, or God and mammon, if you, if, if, uh, you prefer that word. And, and what we find is money is the alternative for what we trust. We either trust in money or we trust in God. And too often, when the two clash, it is money that wins the battle. Because we can see money, we can count money, we can feel money, we can, we can quantify money. We can't quantify God's grace. We can't quantify his will. We can't sit and say, well, you know, when I look at the scales, God's will is this much and the money is this much. Uh, it, it's, we can't do that. We can't see it. And we want to trust what we can see and feel and count. And which one wins? And what do you prove by your actions? And sometimes there is no conflict because, you know, God is not actually opposed to money. Right? Job was not bad in God's eyes because he was rich. He was a righteous man. He was the wealthiest man in his land. He was a good guy with money. There's not necessarily a conflict between God and money. There's not a conflict between God and using money. Right? But sometimes we're put in situations where we have to prove which we trust. And when that happens, it better be God and not money. And you say, but I'm, this, I'm, this is going to risk me money. That's going to cost me money. That's going to, to, to my, my, I'm looking at my future and it's dependent on money. <laughs> right? I started Medicare this month. Actually, last month. Because <laughs> we're in a new month now. Man, you know what? All of a sudden, money, I look at money differently than I did a month ago. It's just weird how that happens because all of a sudden you say, man, I need this to depend on. I have to, take, I have to, have to worry about this stuff. I was always not worried about it before. God wants us to trust God with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Money's hard, but that's too close to home. Let's go to another one. This one's easy, child-rearing. It's not easy, is it? Why is it called rearing? <laughs> that's not the only reason you know the world the world has tons of wisdom on this subject right if you go to a bookstore that sells only new books the section on parenting is huge if you go to a bookstore that has books of all ages <laughs> man there's a bunch there is tons of my thing my mom tried to subscribe to the Dr. Spock theory, which was to never uh, say something negative or, or punish a child. But then, then the old mom would pop out. And so one time I was getting all this permissive thing, and the next time I was getting hit with a Hot Wheel track. <laughs> hot Wheel track was great. It was flexible. It was handy, because in our house, we played with Hot Wheels all the time. And, and uh, you know, I was really familiar with Hot Wheel track. <laughs> Biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom seldom agrees when it comes to how to raise good children. Uh, it's very rare that they're the same. And, and, and here's the thing about raising kids, is these, these kids don't make it in immediately obvious that your method of raising children is working or not. You have to wait to see the outcome. It's like, I can't wait to see the outcome. That's too long. 
that's too far away. I need to see immediate results. I can have no peace unless I see immediate results. But those little kids, they don't show immediate results. <laughs> they just aren't that quickly molded. You know why? Because they are human beings. You are, you are molding not just a child for right now. You are molding a human being for life. Uh, it's an important job. And, and which wisdom are we going to do? Are we going to trust God's wisdom? Or are we going to trust man's wisdom? And if you say, I'm going to trust God's wisdom uh, in, uh, in spite of what man's wisdom says, you, you don't have this immediate, obvious solution where it's taken care of. With money, a lot of times, it, it, the thing solves itself pretty quickly. We're going to see, wow, God is good. But with our kids, it takes a little bit more time. It, I, I'm thinking, right now, I'm thinking of teenage kids. Parents who have said, I have to trust my teenage child in this. How hard is that? Is that not the, like the hardest? The kids, you don't get it. Sorry. You, you, you cannot understand how hard it is for parents to say, I will treat you like an adult in this and trust you. Uh, because, man, we know you too much. <laughs> and because it matters so much. We do it by faith. So let's move on. Let's go to something easier. Forgiving. These don't get easy, do they? They are not easy. Life has challenges, right? We all suffer wrongs. There's not one of us who somebody hasn't wronged. We all suffer from wrongs done to us. Some of us have suffered more greatly than others. Some of us have suffered enormous wrongs done to us. And forgiveness is hard. Most of us know how hard it can be to forgive in one of those things. And I will tell you, nothing but faith can make you do it. Because your reason will not get you there. Your reason will not move you to that act of saying, I forgive you. Because your reason screams against it. It fights and claws and says, no, don't. You know what you think? You think, oh, no, I'm giving him permission to do it again. If I do this, I am letting it happen all over. I cannot forgive, and God says forgive, and only faith can make you do it. It doesn't get easier. This passage isn't written for easy solutions, but for hard ones, for easy situations, but for hard ones. Trust in the Lord with all your heart is not for easy situations. Trust in the Lord with all your heart is for difficult situations. Otherwise, it doesn't need to be all your heart, right? It's for difficult things. We can't see the end. We can't see how it will work out if we do it God's way. But here's the thing is, he can. He can. I picture a, a twisted ball of yarn or a difficultly tangled knot. I am terrible at knots. You know, I like Alexander the Great's method of untying a knot. Anybody know that story? He took a, he took a sword and hacked it in two. He said, anybody who can, who can untie this knot can rule the world. He says, oh yeah, pop. <laughs> and what do you know? He, for a while, ruled the known world. Not very long, he died young, but uh, we can't see the end. We can't untangle that mess. It's too much for us, but he will make our paths straight because he can untangle it. God is in charge of the results. Our responsibility, get this, our responsibility is only faithfulness. Our responsibility is not the results. Our responsibility is not the solution. Our responsibility is not the end product. Our responsibility is faithfulness and trusting him to take care of that. Abraham didn't have to figure it out. You know what really, really shocks me about that passage? 
When, when Abraham, God told him that, it says, Abraham rose early in the morning. Man, I'm sleeping in that day. I'm praying for rain, you know? Sorry, can't go today. Better put it off. <laughs> he got up early in the morning. He, he, didn't, he didn't know. He trusted God to have the answer. He, he, he just had to trust God. Daniel and his friends didn't have to debate. Lord, we don't even have to be careful. No, King, we don't even have to be careful about our answer. It, it's this. We just have to trust God. The apostles didn't have to figure out how to remain free. They just had to trust God. You don't have to figure out how God is going to solve your situation, whatever it is. If it's one of those I named or one of a gazillion other things. You just have to trust God and act in faith. Trust God with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make the path straight. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, Lord, you sometimes, I don't know if I want to say you let life get difficult or maybe you make it difficult because we need to learn to trust you in everything. Father God, I ask that you grow the faith in us, give us the faith, let us demonstrate the faith that says we trust with you in all situations that you will work out the end. Let us lean not on our own understanding, but trust you. I pray in Jesus' name.